Good morning, church family. It's great to see you today. Let's rise today and sing about the glory and the power of the Lord. Amazing grace. Let's sing together. And.
Good morning, church family, and welcome to worship on this Lord's Day. It is such an honor to be here this morning. I'll tell you what, the Lord has been at work all weekend um, at our church, on our church campus, and in our community. This past Friday night, we had the opportunity to canvas the neighborhood for our um, our sports camp that we were having yesterday. And if, if no child had shown up on Saturday morning, it still was worth the canvassing the neighborhood. The Lord ordained um, many conversations that we had with those in our, in the, within the reach of our church that they can see our steeple. And that was amazing. But yesterday, we had 22 kids and 19 volunteers that came for a sports camp that happened yesterday. And the Lord was amazing. It wasn't all of just our kids that were here yesterday. It was a lot of the kids in our community that saw a poster or got a flyer or heard word of mouth about the sports camp that happened yesterday, that was happening yesterday. And the Lord is doing mighty things in our presence, congregation, church family. It is good to be a part of First Baptist Church, and I am glad that you are here today. If you are a guest with us this morning, we ask that you take out your worship guide, and you'll find inside the cover a connect card. We want to connect with you. If you'll fill that out, at the end of the service, if you're a first-time guest, we ask that you meet our pastor and his wife out in the foyer area. He has a copy of his book, The Privilege of Worship, to give you. But if you have prayer requests or either updates on your contact information, fill that out. Turn that in at the end of the service and we want to pray for you we as a church staff pray every tuesday for you but we also have a prayer ministry that every day there is multiple people that are in and out of our prayer room praying for the needs of this congregation of our community and for the world i want you to join me in prayer this morning father we thank you for the for how you're working in our midst lord god from the worship that has already been this morning to the time in Bible study, Lord God, we feel your presence here this morning. Lord God, I thank you for this church, and I thank you for how it's a light in this community. Lord God, I pray that you would use each one of us as we go out this week to point other people to Jesus, that we ourselves would focus on you, and because we spend time with you in your word and through prayer and through worship, that it would overflow out of our hearts and our mouths and through our life so that those that don't have a relationship with you would see that and say, I want whatever it is that he or she has, and that we would be ready to share the gospel with each person that we come, with, come in contact with this week. Lord, may you inhabit our praises this morning, Lord God. As we turn our attention to baptism this morning, Lord God, we thank you that these two were obedient to follow after you and to call on you as their Lord and Savior. God, I know that you're at work in our presence and in our midst. We thank you for allowing us to be a part of your work. It's in Jesus' name that I pray this morning. Amen. What a joy it is, congregation, to be able to celebrate both ordinances today, both the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Baptism is the initial ordinance that we participate in as believers because this is an ordinance that is done once. 
After we've professed faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're baptized to let everyone know about that decision that has been made. And we have two that are coming this morning to show you that they are followers of Jesus Christ now. And they'll, they're also excited about participating in the Lord's Supper for the very first time. The Lord's Supper is the continuing ordinance that we continue to repeat so that we have that testimony that's shared as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting that almost every time we have a baptism or we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there's someone that says, what does that mean? How can I do that, especially among our children? And that is the point that we're sharing that witness. And so today we have coming two that are professing their faith in Jesus Christ. And the first is Brashton Thiels. Brashton has been in conversation about trusting Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior for some time. Kind of started in Sunday school and with his parents. And then at Vacation Bible School this year, Brashton finally made that decision public. And so he's here this morning letting you know that he is a follower of Jesus Christ. Brashton, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. All right. Then upon your profession of faith, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. Amen. What an awesome privilege it is to get to participate in baptism at your church, but to get to do it and see one of my Sunday school kids, because I teach Preston in Sunday school, so get to see him in the water, but also get to baptize my own daughter-in-law. This is Ploy Anderson. Um, she is my daughter-in-law and has been for about two and a half years. When her and my son got married, she came from a different faith background, and we've just shared Jesus with her and just loved on her, and um, there's been several people in her life that have stepped forward and just loved on her and just continued to share the truth of Jesus and who he is with her. And then about a month ago at kids camp, um, at the last day of kids camp over lunch, we had someone sit down with her and just start talking to her. And right then she confessed Jesus as her Lord and Savior um, and came to Christianity. And so we're so excited about that. Ploy, I'm just going to ask you, have you confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And are you trusting in him alone for your salvation? That's the best news I've heard in forever. It's because of that. That's right. It's because of that that I baptize you as my sister in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism. Raised to walk in a whole new way of life. I just want you to know today just as we have uh, observed this today, that there is hope. Amen? There is hope, and that hope is found in Christ alone. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then today we want you to know that. Today can be the day of salvation for you because our hope and our trust is in him. And he is light, and light makes darkness move. Amen? Amen. We sing to him today in Christ alone. Rise to your feet. Let's stand and sing this, this great song of worship.
Church family, we now come to this wonderful time remembering all that Jesus did for us and what wonderful music we've had this morning and being able to just focus on the Lord and preparing our hearts that it is in Christ alone that we have redemption and salvation, that salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name by which we can be saved except through the name of Jesus Christ. As Paul recounts to the church in Corinth about keeping the Lord's Supper, he writes in this way, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the Lord's Supper is for those who are believers today. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you may partake of these elements. You don't have to be a member of this particular church. You just have to be a member of the family of God. And as you partake of the Lord's Supper elements today, think about what God did for you, what Jesus did in giving of his body. Jesus took that bread, which was the matzah, that unleavened bread of the day, and it was pierced and it was bruised, and it reminded him of his body and what his body would be like in just a few short hours. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And you can hear the breaking take place. And it's a fitting symbol of what Jesus did for us. So as you take the bread and you hold it in your hands, think about his body that was broken for you. May we pray together. Our Father, we come before you today and we thank you for your body that was broken. Thank you for giving your son, Jesus Christ, to be broken for our sins. We know that salvation is free, but that doesn't mean it didn't cost anything. It was very, very costly. And so thank you, Lord, for giving of yourself for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, as the scripture tells us, Jesus took that cup of wine and as he looked into it, he couldn't help but think about his blood that would be shed. The crimson color reminding him that his blood would flow freely for our sins. The scriptures tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Jesus' blood would be shed so that we might know forgiveness. May we thank the Lord now for his blood that was shed for us. Gracious Lord, we're grateful that you held nothing back to pay the penalty for our sin. We owed a debt that we could never pay, and you paid it for us freely. Thank you, Lord, that you shed your blood for us so that we would no longer have to continue in sacrificing bulls and rams and offering so many sacrifices that only covered up sin but never removed it. But we thank you that your blood washes white as snow. As we reflect upon this, may we be encouraged in our faith and may those among us today who, yet, who have yet to trust you as their Lord and Savior come to a saving knowledge of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. It will be shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. Scriptures also tell us that after they had celebrated the Lord's Supper, they went out singing a hymn. We're not going to go out just yet, but we are going to sing a hymn. Would you please stand as we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Oh uh-huh. 
May we pray. Our Father, we do come before you this day to offer our thanksgiving to you and our praise and adoration to you, for indeed you are faithful to us. We thank you that you gave forth your Son to die on Calvary's cross that we might have eternal life and walk with you throughout all of eternity. And so, Father, we come as a church to praise you, to thank you, and to take your message throughout the world. And so, Lord, as we receive our tithes and our offerings, may they be used to your glory to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ from Pineville to the ends of the earth. So we thank you, Father, for your faithfulness and pray that you would strengthen us to follow out your command to take the gospel to all the nations. For this we pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
my birthday was approaching, and I knew what I wanted, a wee-woo car. And my mom and dad did the same thing. What in the world is a wee-woo car? And the problem was, in my preschool mind, I didn't have a vocabulary other than wee-woo. So mom and dad asked for clarification day after day, but all I could say was a wee-woo car. You know, it says wee-woo. And finally, one day, we were driving down the road, and a police car passed by, and I said, wee-woo, wee-woo. Well, that year, my birthday party was at Keys Park over here in Pineville. And when I opened my gift from mom and dad, don't you know, there was a wee-woo car there. And I was so excited. But this was not just any wee-woo car. This was a very special wee-woo car that when you pushed it, it made a siren and the lights flashed. Now, I know kids today, that's nothing. But in the 1979-80, that was a big deal. My friends and I pushed that little wee-woo car all around the pavilion at Keys Park that day, and the siren blared, and the lights flashed, and it was great. We went home, and later that evening, I was going through my presents, and I saw that wee-woo car, and I got it back out, and I pushed it, and nothing happened. I pushed it again, nothing happened. No lights no siren. There was no more wee-woo. So I took the car to my dad who could fix anything. He took it apart and determined that the motor had already burned up. <laughs> In one short hour, my friends and I had worn out that car. It went on the shelf. I never played with it much except when I was playing Wreck and Godzilla or something and broke it. But what good is a wee-woo car? that doesn't wee-woo. <laughs> you know, one of the dangers of life is losing your wee-woo. In our fast-paced culture, the danger of discouragement and depression is very real. And some people are more susceptible to others, but none of us can say, well, that won't happen to me. When you push and you push, eventually your wee-woo runs out. But there's a difference between you and my car. You see, you don't have to go on a shelf. You can get your wee-woo back. You can be restored. And we're going to find out how today as we continue this series, Elijah, Prophet of Power and Humility with a message I've entitled, A Dark Night of the Soul. Please turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Kings 19 if you haven't already. 1 Kings chapter 19. And as we open chapter 19 of 1 Kings, Elijah is catching his breath after outrunning King Ahab's chariot all the way from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. And Ahab is going into the palace to tell his wicked witch of a wife, Jezebel, what had happened over on Mount Carmel. Ahab is going to tell her all about the showdown at the altars, how her 450 prophets of Baal had been killed, how the people had fallen on their faces before Yahweh God, about Elijah praying and about the rain coming. And as she hears the news, Jezebel's eyes darken and her face falls. And instead of being intimidated by the power of God, she is infuriated. Look at 
1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Now every post office in Israel already had Elijah's face put up in it. He was already among the most wanted. Jezebel's henchmen had been looking for him for three years. But Jezebel has a new resolve. Because before, Elijah was just a nuisance. He was the reason the drought had come. But now, he is an enemy of the state. The destroyer of Jezebel's satanic control of the people. And so furious, Jezebel declares this curse. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. If by tomorrow, you are not dead as well. So what does Elijah do? What does he do when he hears that message? Does he... March right into Jezebel and said, go ahead, sister, make my day. Well, what does he do? Well, let's see. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. After the showdown on Mount Carmel, Elijah may have thought that Jezebel would fall on her face before God when she heard about what had happened. She didn't. And so therefore, Elijah ran away scared. He runs and runs and runs all the way to Beersheba. He's already run a near marathon from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. Now he runs another 40 miles to Beersheba to the southern limits of the land. Now why does Elijah run scared? He hasn't run scared before in our story. He's been a prophet of courage. Why now? Well... For the last three years, Elijah had been living on the edge. For three years, he'd been looking over his shoulder to see if any of the henchmen were coming. For three years, he'd been living on little more than bread and water. And finally, over the last few days, Elijah had watched God show up and show out. It had been exhilarating, so much so that Elijah had been so enthralled and so excited that he had run that near marathon all the way from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. And now, however, Elijah's exhilaration has turned to perspiration. What used to fill him was now draining him. And there at the end of himself, when it came to the question, fight or flight, Elijah fled. Philip Keller says, often in sudden unexpected crises, our eyes are diverted from the power and presence of Christ to the threatening circle of circumstances closing in around us. And our faith fails and we want to run for our lives. So arriving in Beersheba... Elijah leaves his servant behind, and he then goes another day's journey on into the desert, and there he collapses under a broom tree, prays that he might die, and passes out in sleep. 
what happened to this once courageous prophet? Well, Elijah's wee-woo had run out. There under that broom tree, Elijah faced discouragement and depression. How can this happen to one so spiritual like Elijah? The better question is, how can it not? You see, when any of us run so long at a fever pitch, our motor runs out. And several of the successful men and women of God in Scripture have suffered such feelings, all of them often after pressing for too long. For instance, after seeing God do amazing work of leading the Hebrews out of Egypt, Moses prayed a similar, Lord, just let me die prayer. The the grumbling and complaining of the Israelites just got on his nerves. It got the best of Moses until in Numbers eleven fourteen he prays, God, I'm tired of this griping. Kill me at once. Every leader has prayed that prayer at some point in their life. The Psalms also are filled with King David's laments in the midst of his own discouragement and depression. And you read them sometimes, they sound like blues, despair, and agony on me. They're just terrible. And on a good day, when I read those, I think, good night, give the man a Prozac. But on down days when I read that, I think, me too, David. Me too. Thanks for being real, man. Thanks for letting us see that. There is a common, unspoken, yet inaccurate assumption that says Christians, especially Christian leaders, are not supposed to struggle with discouragement and depression. But the Bible and 2,000 years of church history proves otherwise. In fact, uh, spiritual leaders are not immune to a worn-out wee-woo. H.B. London gives these startling statistics about pastors. 75% of pastors report a significant stress-related crisis at least once in their ministry. 52% of pastors say they and their spouses believe that being in pastoral ministry is hazardous to their family's well-being and health. And 45.5% of pastors say they've experienced depression or burnout to the extent that they needed to take a leave of absence from ministry. You know, Mother Teresa and Charles Spurgeon both ran out of wee-woo at some point in their ministry. Moses, David, Jeremiah, Job, Mary, Martha, and more ran out of wee-woo as well. The raw, unedited stories of the Bible remind us that these were not superhumans. These were people just like us. Men like Moses and Elijah and women like Esther and Martha were people like you and like me. That's why James reminds us in James 5.17 that Elijah was a man just like us. Not just so that we can see the power in his prayer and learn that we can pray like that too, but that we can learn that he grew discouraged just like we do as well. Elijah's depression came on him just like it does any of us. Chemicals got unbalanced after that push, push, push happened until finally nothing. When you're constantly giving out, eventually you wear out. And sometimes it's beyond your control. There are certain seasons of life that just demand more of us than others. There's that prolonged illness of a loved one or the loss of a loved one. The demands of ministry, the challenges of a spiritual attack, the, the pressures of a job, any kind of long-term stress can be a precursor to depression. And eventually, 
Our flashing lights fade and our cheerful wee-woo quiets to a whimper until there is nothing left. And that's where Elijah was, lying under the scant shade of a broom tree in a hot desert, hoping to die. So did Elijah get out of the depression? And if so, how did he get out? Well, let's see. Look at the second part of verse 5. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. When Elijah laid down, he had hoped to die. He had been so courageous, but now he's discouraged, so he needs to be encouraged. And so God came and ministered to him there. And here we see the first step to overcoming depression, which is to rest up. The last few days had exhausted Elijah's resources. Emotionally, he had gone from the height of gaining victory over the prophets of Baal to the low of being marked by Jezebel. Spiritually, Elijah had seen God work in ways that he had never before seen in his life. And physically... Over the last few days, Elijah had climbed a mountain, built an altar, slaughtered a bull, prayed his heart out, and run some 60 miles. Everything in his body was worn out and depleted. Everything in his spirit was depleted. What he most needed was to rest up. Elijah had just experienced an unparalleled spiritual victory after a prolonged season of stress. It's no wonder he was done. While any prolonged season of stress can be a precursor to depression, do you know that believers are most vulnerable to depression after a spiritual high? After you've been closest to the Lord, after you've seen him do the greatest things in your life, that's when you're most vulnerable to depression. And sometimes that depression is a spiritual attack. But other times, it's simply the result of our bodies being worn out after a time of spiritual intensity. So after a period of intensity, especially a, spiritually, especially a spiritual victory, you have to take time to rest. You have to realize there are no permanent victories. You've got to regain strength for the next day. So how do you do that? Eat a snack and take a nap. After Elijah rests, I love this. The angel of the Lord comes to Elijah, wakes him up and tells him, Hey man, eat and drink. So Elijah eats a snack and then he goes back to sleep. And after a little while, the angel comes back, wakes Elijah up and tells him to eat and drink again. God allows Elijah to rest. There's no rebuke. There's no sermon. There's just a snack, some water and a nap. And repeat, Elijah rests in God's care, and so can you. So whenever you're feeling that you must keep going and can't stop, remember that sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is eat a snack and take a nap. Some of y'all are going to be real spiritual this afternoon. <laughs> After resting up, the angel encourages Elijah to a second step, and that is get up. Look at the next part of verse 8 into verse 9. Strengthened by that food, Elijah traveled 40 days and 40 nights, 
until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. With some rest, Elijah now had to make himself get up and follow the Lord. He needed some self-determination and some self-discipline to help him push through depression. And so God leads Elijah on an arduous journey through the deep desert of Beersheba to Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. And that journey was a winding route that threaded its way through mountains and sands of the Sinai Peninsula. And it was miles of torture. It was miles of terrifying temperatures. But he did it. And in all of this, notice that God listened to Elijah. And then God led Elijah. God's not leaving Elijah on his own. God is leading Elijah on a spiritual retreat. When you feel yourself discouraged and distressed, take some rest, but don't stay there. After a snack and a nap, get up, because next you'll also need to look up. Depression drives you down, so to move up, you've got to look up. Look at verses 9 and 10. There he went to a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah arrives on Mount Sinai. He goes into a cave, and the Lord comes to him. And God asked Elijah a question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, this was not a question asked harshly, what are you doing here, Elijah? Nor was it a question asked out of ignorance, what are you doing here, Elijah? God knew the answer. This was a question asked for Elijah's benefit. God wanted Elijah to think about what was going on. He wanted Elijah to think about what he was doing there. It's a similar question to what God asked Adam and Eve right after the fall. Do you remember that in, in Genesis when they, they, they sin and Adam and Eve hide away and God comes walking in the garden and he says, where are you? He's not playing hide and seek with them. He's not, it's not that he can't find them physically. He wants them to think about where they are in relationship to God spiritually. And that's what God is doing here. He's asking Elijah, what's going on? And so Elijah responds, I've been a spiritual hero, but it's been no use. The Israelites have broken down your altars. They've killed all your prophets, and I'm the only one that's left. It's like Elijah has forgotten everything that's happened over the last several days and even over the last years. Because here's the thing about it. The circumstance hadn't changed one bit for the last three years. The prophet's been dead. Elijah's been the only one that's been out there speaking. It didn't seem to bother him a couple of days ago. But now all of a sudden, it's beaten him down. Elijah has enjoyed some rest and a snack, but he is still depressed. He's still discouraged. Though depression may settle in suddenly, our bodies didn't get there suddenly. And so it doesn't leave us suddenly. It takes many steps to get out. And Elijah had nursed his depression into self-pity. And now he's wallowing in it. And self-pity lies and exaggerates. It gives you amnesia concerning everything good in your life. Isn't it amazing how we can forget all the amazing things God has done in an instant? 
And we're down and depressed. As he sat there and pouted, Elijah completely forgot that the famine he foretold had indeed come. He'd been fed by ravens in the desert. The widow's flour and oil had not run out. He'd raised the widow's son to life. Fire had fallen on Mount Carmel. The rains had returned when he prayed. And that he had outrun a chariot. That is seven demonstrations of the power of God, three of which had just occurred just days before, but Elijah had forgotten all about it. Self-pity gives you amnesia concerning the good things in life, but you know something else it does? It exaggerates the bad in your life. On the one hand, it makes one seem like everyone, and on the other hand, it makes one seem like no one. Here's what I mean. Elijah thought everyone was trying to kill him. No, they weren't. Just one was, Jezebel. Likewise, he thought there was no one left to serve God except him. But we're going to find out that there are 7,000 others who are still faithful to the Lord. God still had plenty of prophets, as he will soon find out. Elijah felt abandoned, and he felt alone. And the temptation was to doubt God's ever-present care. But thankfully... God always wants to help us come out of those seasons when we're like that. God will show up just as he did for Elijah. What Elijah didn't realize is that God had brought him to the cave for a period of what one writer called solitary refinement. Elijah needed to get along with God so he could hear from God. And that's just what he does. Look at verse 11. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. The way out of despair is not running from God or from your circumstance, nor is it seeking another ecstatic, ecstatic and exciting experience. The way out of this kind of situation is to hear afresh and anew the still, small voice of God speaking to you. You know, if you want to hear from God, you will. And Elijah does. As Elijah sat in the cave, he had... He heard the great and powerful wind. I mean, through the cave opening, he saw rocks falling above and around. He heard the rocks tumbling above that cave. And then suddenly, the whole ground beneath him and around him began to shake as a violent earthquake shook that mountain. And about the time that ended, lightning flashed outside the cave, striking and igniting a fire that burned up and over the, the mountain. But the Lord was not in the wind. And the Lord was not in the earthquake and the Lord was not in the fire because finally Elijah heard a still small voice a gentle whisper and when Elijah heard it he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave Elijah had heard the voice of God many times he knew what it sounded like 
He knew it when he heard it. And here, even in the midst of despair, even in his cave mood of depression, Elijah heard the voice of God again. And God asked Elijah that same question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers in the exact same way. Now, we might think, come on, man, aren't you any better? Well, yeah, he is. He's rested up, he's gotten up, he's looked up, but he's in process. He's he's getting better, but he's not well yet. And so the next step is still to come, and that is to step up. Because without responding to Elijah's self-pity and response, God commissions Elijah with a new assignment to which Elijah must step up. Look at verses 15 to 18. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go back to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel, Meholath, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Sometimes the way out of depression is a new commission, a new purpose for living. And God gives Elijah that. Do you you get that? It's like Elijah's still in his woe is me state. And God says, stand up, boy. Get you a piece of paper because I got a job for you to do. And he lists off three things. You're going to go. You're going to anoint new kings over Aram and Israel. You're going to then anoint your predecessor, Elisha. And then you're going to find 7,000 faithful friends. That's a big to-do list. And Elijah gets this new work and new friends from God. And he goes out. Typically, depression comes on us because we're looking downward and backward. And God comes to Elijah and helps him look upward and forward. Elijah immediately obeys the Lord. As we continue to read, we see that he is faithful to follow the Lord. And after coming out of this dark night of the soul, Elijah continues his ministry in a refreshed and a renewed way with Elijah at his side. Elijah's wee-woo has come back and he went on to great ministry. So let me ask you today, how's your wee-woo? Are your lights dimming? Is the cheerful siren fading? I encourage you to stop pushing for a moment and allow yourself to rest up and look up before it's too late. If you say, no, Pastor, my wee-woo's all the way gone. There's nothing left. Let me encourage you. You don't have to go on a shelf like my car did. You can be restored. Follow the steps Elijah did. And you'll see the progress come, but it may be that you need a little bit of extra help. You may need some counseling, and we have a wonderful counseling ministry here that you can plug into and get the help you need. It's completely confidential. I don't even know who uses that. Even if I refer them, I don't find out if they ever went to the counseling unless they tell me it's that confidential. And can I also encourage you something else as I thought about this? Stop letting others push you. As I thought about my wee-woo car... I don't think I really played with it much that day. It was my friends that played with it and wore it out. Sometimes people are pushing us and we're trying to please them and we're trying to do everything until finally we're just worn out. The other side of that is sometimes we think other people are pushing us, but it's really ourselves. So stop the push, get the rest. Because what good is a wee-woo car that has lost its wee-woo?
Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you today. We know, Lord, at times that we get so distracted by so many things, and the thing that we just need to do is come to you. We need to come into your rest. And so, Lord, right now we come near to your heart, and we want to be near to you right now because we need you. Every single hour of our lives we need you in good times and sad times and bad times and glad times. So, Lord, wherever we may be today, we need you right now. Lord, for our church family today, for those who are experiencing discouragement and depression, I pray that you would speak these truths into their lives and bring encouragement to them. I pray, Lord, also for those in this room who've yet to trust you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, as they saw the baptism and the Lord's Supper today, you've been speaking to them and you've been helping them to say, hey, you need to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, right now, we ask that you would speak to them clearly, help them to know their need for you, and in a moment, help them to make that response public. Lord, right now, we seek your face and we ask for you to move in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.